Y'all had me nervous tonight at 6.03. None of you were here. So that was just a little nerve-wracking. Nerve um, we're in Acts Part 2 this week. We did Acts Part 1 two weeks ago. So we'll spend a little bit more time in review than normal. But first we're going to pray and get going. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now and we are thankful for our time uh, to gather tonight and to dig into your word. Um, to consider that which you've left us with, that you've breathed out, that's living, that's two-edged. Um, and we're thankful that we have access um, and understanding because of the union we have with Christ and the power we have of the indwelling Spirit. Um, so we pray that you would guide our time as well, Lord. Uh, we do continue to pray uh, for Brussels and for those who have been affected um, by terror attacks and those who are being affected by threats of more of them. Um, I pray that, um, that you would heal and that you would encourage and that you would sustain the weary. And I also pray that in light of that, we would, we would read our Bibles and have a proper worldview and a proper um, quickening as to the realities of the way things are and the way things will be eternally and the way that affects us uh, as, as believers on planet Earth in 2016. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray that you would guide this time. We, we entrust ourselves to you and ask you to use us as you see fit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts, the subtitle is Jesus the Risen Lord. Um, and our outline, there's just three parts that we're covering in our outline. The message about Jesus, which is what we covered last time. The mission of Jesus and the means for this mission. And so... We already covered the message about Jesus. That's what we're going to recap here for a few minutes and review. And then tonight's focus is going to be on the mission and the means of the mission. So before um, we dive into the reviewing, does anyone remember what the challenge was over the last two weeks? To read Acts. So the question, did anybody read Acts? Yeah, most of it. Okay. If no one said anything, I was just gonna leave. I'm just gonna bounce. Go get some wings. Yeah. What, so, Bill, this is just you and me now. Uh, uh, you've read it before. So, when you read through the Book of Acts, should you have read it in the last two weeks or the last, you know, two decades? Um, what What were things that that jumped out as you read through it? What are some some notable details? Yeah. Yeah. Anything else jump out in y'all's recollection? I think it's just amazing to how the Lord directly called steps on his journey. Yeah. From place to place. And he would yeah. want to go somewhere, but the Lord would shut that door and bring mm -hmm. him somewhere else. And how he was sensitive to that. Yeah. And then he would get there and see how the Lord. Yeah. 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 Yeah, as you see, Paul changed. You know, God got his attention, and then he hears the gospel, and then he preaches the gospel, and you see all the different places he has to preach it. Generally, his preaching is wherever he's on trial, or he preaches and is on trial as a result of what he said. 
And, and not this week, but the next week, we're going to jump back in Romans, and I'll be preaching for two weeks. And we're talk, the thing that struck me is we're going to be talking about where Paul says, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And if you read the book of Acts, the phrase, Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, takes on a whole new meaning. Because you see a guy who stands before the councils, and he doesn't try to reason, he doesn't try to finagle, he doesn't try to outwit them. He's witty. I mean, he's brilliant. We're going to talk about that tonight. But he just shares gospel. He shares the truth about Jesus, the truth about the resurrection, the truth of the witnesses who saw it. And he never wavers. And he trusts God to to guide him through and put him where he needs. And he ends up eventually in Rome as he appeals to Caesar. And so um, that phrase, I'm not ashamed, takes on a whole new meaning when you actually just sit and read through uh, the book of Acts. So in review, what were the witnesses to the message of Jesus in Acts? Last week we talked about the witnesses, the substance, the significance, and the goal. So what were the witnesses to the message of Jesus in the book of Acts? What were the witnesses? There were 42 of them. I'll accept any of them. Um, how, how, did, how was the gospel proclaimed in the book of Acts? Testimonies? How else? You already said one. Sermons. Yeah, there were ten sermons. What else? How many commissions were there from Jesus? Two commissions. Someone held up two fingers, just so you all know. I wasn't just acting like someone answered. Yes, very good, very attentive, yes. Um, two commissions. Uh, there were 30 summaries of sermons that were communicated throughout the book, and then there were also uh, the descriptions from the opponents on what Christianity was. Remember, there were the idol makers who were like, you know, the, the, they're, they're coming in with, with odd teaching from a faraway land. They're foreigners that are bringing a weird message. And so there were 42 plus the opponents' descriptions of the witnesses um, to the message of Jesus in Acts. What were some of the different ways that preaching was done in the book of Acts? Yep. And reason with the Jews, and usually by that time he was getting kicked out of the synagogue, and so then yeah. he would go to the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. There's a pattern of him going, going to the synagogues, and reasoning with the Jews. And what's interesting is, at Crosspoint, we put a high priority on expositional, um, expository, whichever variation of the word you want to use, um, preaching, verse by verse. But what we see in the Book of Acts, and it's a good reminder for us because generally, you're going to get that almost every Sunday here. The, the reason you get that every Sunday here is that generally, this is people who are well-versed in the Scriptures, well-versed in what the Gospel is. They, they have a, a, an idea of what it is. And so when Ben gets up and preaches, um, or anyone else, it's going to be, let's go to the verses and work through them verse by verse. But in these settings, there's, the Gospel's new. The Gospel message is a new thing. And so they reason... Through um, it's not mostly expositional. It's a lot of times they'll start with creation, and then they'll reason from creation. Or you'll see them start with history and move into text. And so it's good to see that depending on where you are, you know, if you're talking to people who have never heard the name of Jesus and have no idea about anything, a topical sermon may be far more fitting than uh, a particular expositional sermon. 
And so it, it helps us to see that as you're communicating gospel, it, you, we need wisdom on how to communicate it depending on who we're talking to and what setting we're talking to them in. Um, what was the substance of the message? Jesus, thank you. Is anyone tired tonight? Anybody? Anyone read Acts? No. Anyone tired? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very. Um, the substance of the message was Jesus, absolutely. Particularly, what, what about Jesus? He was the Christ. That he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. There was no, there was nothing like, uh, let's be suspicious or, or be uh, mysterious and let him figure it out. No, it's very clear. He's proclaimed as the Christ, proclaimed as the Messiah. And what part of Jesus' um, story is focused on in the book of Acts as opposed to Luke's gospel? Yeah, the death and the resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection. And the interesting thing that I want us to remember is that the resurrection was not argued for. What was it argued? From. Like, you could assume, if you met a non-believer during this time, because of all the witnesses, like hundreds of witnesses, actually more than that by this time, there were so many witnesses, and the resurrection was such a fact that you could assume during this time that if you engaged a non-believer, they, they believed in the resurrection. That's bizarre. Like we, that's why it's important for us to import ourselves into the story and consider what it would be like because you wouldn't have to argue for the resurrection the way we would today. Today we talk about resurrection, people are like, oh, oh you're going to check your brain at the door before we even start the argument. But then it was such a fact because it was, there were so many witnesses and there was such clarity that you could actually argue from the resurrection, not for the resurrection. What was the significance of the message? Well, we already said it. Jesus is the Messiah. He came to bring in the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. Um, the Savior now will return as judge later. And what was the goal of the message? Remember, this is ending the section about the truth about Jesus. What was the goal of the message? Repent? Which brings people to faith in Jesus, which leads to what finally? Discipleship? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus being worshipped as God. The final goal is that Jesus be worshipped as God. So tonight, we're going to talk about the mission of Jesus. We talked about the message about Jesus. Now we're going to talk about the mission of Jesus as seen from the book of Acts. Before we even go to the text, what is to be done with the gospel message? Shared, right? We don't hide it, we share it. Who do we share it with? Everyone and where? Everywhere. So I just want to make sure that's clear up front. The point of the gospel, what is to be done with it, is to be taken to all kinds of people everywhere. So turn to Acts. In the book of Acts, we want to see you know, this, this mission of Jesus and the, what, the gospel being handled properly. And in the book of Acts, the church faced a conflict and they worked through it because that's what churches do. I want us to just take a minute just to take that little tidbit. They have a conflict and they worked through it. And good things came from them working through the conflict. That's what happens here. It says, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so they have a conflict, they have an issue, there's a complaint, and they work through it. And what I want us to see is in verse 7, they work through these things, and in verse 7 it says, And the word of God 
continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want us to see in this verse, as we're talking about the mission of Jesus, we're talking about what's to be done with the gospel message, we're seeing the effect of it moving forward. I want us to see this. The result of good order is that the word of God continued to increase. As the pastor who oversees operations and details, I love this verse because it's, it talks about good order. Good order is not really optional. Here, there had to be good order in the church so that there weren't people being overlooked, so that the distribution was properly handled. And all of that goes into the word of God going forth and, pe- and it being multiplied greatly. And so the result of good order here is the word of God moving forward and people coming to faith. There's a good reminder that I thought about here that I've heard from other people. It's not my original thought or anything, but God's sovereignty was never meant to be an excuse for laziness or sloppiness. No one says, well, what are you doing evangelistically? Tell me about evangelism in your life, Christian person. We're not allowed to say, well, God saves who he's going to save because he's sovereign. So I don't, you know, if someone walks up to me with like a shirt that says, tell me about Jesus, I totally will. But, but, you know, there's no form, there's no order, there's no plan. We can't be sloppy and lazy about anything as Christians. We're supposed to have really good order. And what we see here is that the result of the good order is the Word of God continuing to increase. We're not ever able to use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness or sloppiness. And that, that, that rings true in our parenting as well. We entrust our children to God. There's no doubt about that. You can't do everything that they need to come to salvation. You can't make faith decisions for them. However, you've been entrusted to be the main disciple maker in the lives of your children. So we can't say, well, I don't know if my kid's going to believe, but God's sovereign. And if he's going to believe, he's going to believe no matter what. No, God entrusted that kid to you as well. And so you're the main disciple. So there's order here. I just want us to see we don't use, we don't have sloppiness and laziness in our lives because God's sovereign. We can't ever use that as an excuse. Not that not that any of us would actively use that as an excuse, but if we think about areas where there is disorder, Maybe there's something in the back of our head where it's like, there's a little conversation where it's like, ah, I trust God with that. But if we were actually trusting God with it, maybe we would be more active in some of the order that we have in our lives. What does it mean for the Word of God to increase? What does that mean? I mean, we're reading here, it's a good thing, and the Word of God continued to increase. But what does that mean? It's growing the kingdom. And what does that mean? Yes. Yeah, you tell someone, they tell someone else, and it spreads. But it's the Word of God that's increasing. I want us to make sure we see that. It's not just people with familiar and similar likes or anything like that. It's, I speak Word of God, you hear Word of God, you speak Word of God, they hear Word of God, we're speaking Word of God. Like, I want you to see it's the Word of God that's increasing. You can't ever stray from the word in this process of evangelism here in the very early days of the church. Turn to 931. This is a significant chapter, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. The, the, um, Paul is being converted. He's going from Saul to, to becoming Paul, and 
In verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What is it? The church. And what is it also related to? People who are speaking what? Word of God. Look at 12, 20 through 24. I want us to just keep seeing this connection between the gospel and the church because what we see in the book of Acts is that they grow and they move forward together. And in 12, 20, it says, um, this is, is I'm going to read these four verses because anytime I write woe out in the, do y'all write in your Bibles? It's okay. Like, I got lots of question marks in the margins. There's some things I was reading through the book of Acts and I'm like, why'd they do that? That didn't make any sense. I would have made a totally different decision. That doesn't mean I'm right. It just means let's put a question mark here and maybe God will give me insight into that because not everything makes sense at first. And this, I just wrote woe in the, in the margin. 1220. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an, or, an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. Whoa, right? <laughs> King Herod. It's King Herod. Whoa. But look at the next verse. But the word of God increased and multiplied. What I want us to see here in the book of Acts is important for us in our setting. In the midst of cultural and political uncertainty, right? People are restless. They go to their leadership. The leadership makes a speech. Doesn't give glory to God. Gets struck down, eaten by worms, breathe their last breath. I'm going to call that political and cultural uncertainty, right? I mean, that's sort of like the, the, the clearest example we could have of something like, whoa, things are going sideways. What I want us to see is even in the midst of political and cultural uncertainty, the word went forth. It's a beautiful reminder of the effectiveness of the word of God and the effectiveness of the truth of the gospel. We don't have to, we don't have to change it. There's no need because they go forth. And I want us to consider for a moment that the word of God cannot go forth without the church of God. And the church of God cannot increase without the word of God. They're inseparable. It's a theme throughout the book of Acts. If you're growing and your numbers are getting huge and you have strayed from the word of God, it's not the church. And if the church is moving forward and growing and it's good, it's doing so with the word of God. So let's look at some patterns of growth in the book of Acts. The first pattern I want us to look at is from nation to nations. So if you're taking notes, write patterns of growth. Number one, from nation to to nations, plural, singular to plural, from Israel to the Gentiles. As you read through the book of Acts, who seems to reject Jesus the most? The Jews. It's a remarkable pattern. He preaches, Peter preaches, Paul preaches, and the Jews reject him. <clears throat> Dever notes, and it's really important for us to get this, and the book of Acts you know, makes this clear. 
This does not mean that plan A had failed, forcing God to move to plan B. We really have to understand this. I remember as a kid having a hard time with this. It's weird as I'm going through Old Testament stuff and making connections and acts and you know, seeing the Gospels. I'm having these flashbacks to like when I was a kid and like, yeah, I remember the first time I heard that and that didn't make any sense to me. And I just thought, well, I don't know. And then I'd go ask my dad and a lot of times he'd say, I don't know, son, we can ask God when we get there. And I'd be like, ah, oh, I know there's an answer somewhere. This is something that didn't always make sense to me because if they're the people of God and they're the, the nation for God and they had over a thousand years of, of being God's people and God did so much to bring them out, how could they, things go so wrong when Jesus got on the scene? Like, that was something that I struggled with. How could things go so sideways and they be so not God's people anymore when Jesus came to earth? And I, and I had a hard time understanding that because there was so much history there and so much tradition that still affects us today another 2,000 years on this side of it. And so what we have to see here is that plan A did not fail, forcing God to move to plan B. God has always planned for Israel to be the seed that falls into the ground, dies, and is transformed for the blessing of the nations. You remember that part, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, that Jesus talked about? This has always been the plan. The plan for Israel was always leading to what Christianity is now. From the point that they were called out, this was the long-term plan. And so we have to see God's sovereign, calculated, specific, amazing, detailed movement in these things. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament that begins in Genesis 12 when God promises Abraham that his seed will be a blessing to all nations. The idea that it wouldn't only be limited to ethnic Israelites wasn't a new idea. But you sure would have thought it was a new idea if you went and talked to a Gentile in the setting, right? Because when he goes and talks to the Gentiles, it's very frowned upon. So we have to see that, go all the way back to Genesis 12, the whole point is that Abraham's seed will be a blessing to all nations. So the idea that this is going to go to someone other than ethnic Israelites really wasn't ever a new idea. And those who saw Jesus for who he was, they were rightly anticipating what they should have been anticipating the whole time. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, is, he's called the seed of Abraham in Matthew 1.1, commissioned his apostles to preach the good news of forgiveness to all the peoples of the earth. Look at Acts 1.8. So Jesus, the seed of Abraham, continuing that line of blessing that would go to all nations, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham, who is already prophesied to be a blessing to all the nations, is saying, so here's how it's going to work. I'm Jesus, seed of Abraham. We made it. <laughs> I mean, you can almost seem like, hey, you've been waiting on me a long time. Generation after generation after generation, it all, God did all this stuff, and I'm here. And here's what happens. You go tell the world now as my witnesses, witnesses to his resurrection, witnesses to the truth of the gospel, who are now commissioned to go and speak truth to the nations. Look at 10, 34 through 43. Acts 10, 34. We're going to come back to this one here in a little bit as well. But in 10, 34, I want us to see... Um, so, so this is after Peter and Cornelius 
And we're, we're going to come back and, and, and look at this situation a little bit more later. But just in 34, it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. The issue here is Cornelius was a, a godly man, and he prayed to God, and God heard his prayers and came to him in a vision. And at the same time, God went and came to Peter in a vision and um, pretty much connected the two of them um, in an amazing way. And so now Peter is in front of him, and they're saying, all right, well, God went through all this trouble to get us together. Peter, what do you got? And Peter opens his mouth and says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Impartiality. This picture of evangelism and gospel. Have you ever considered that the call for us to be impartial is directly related to Jesus' impartiality and desire to reach the nations? I'm going to say that again. Have you ever considered that the call for us to be impartial, like don't be partial towards people, don't give other people more clout than you give other people, don't look down on particular people because of anything. The call for us to be impartial is directly related to Jesus' impartiality and his desire to reach the nations. I think if I lose sight of that, I'm not going to have all the reasons I need to remain impartial. So my question is, what are some hurdles or hindrances to remaining impartial? If you're talking about who you're going to go to, who you're going to share gospel with, who you're going to have Jesus conversations with, what are some hurdles and hindrances that keep us from being impartial or that maybe make us feel like we have to be more partial? Mm-hmm. He really ain't got fit. And, um, and 
Why is that? Why do we unknowingly treat people different when we're not careful? Yeah, it, that's a fact. It's way easier to be around people that you have shared experiences and shared like likes with. So who? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, I asked for a hurdle. Cultural, socioeconomic realities. That's a hurdle. What's another hurdle? That's our comfort zone. Yeah, comfort zone. We like our comfort zones. That's a hurdle. Fear. Fear. How, how, how does fear play? Yeah. Does anyone feel like getting on a flight to Brussels and going to share in the gospel? Right? Well, how else? How else does it play in? Yeah? I mean, like, we were on this trip last week with Lights Company. He won a trip and we went. We were there with a lot of people in the world. Yeah. I felt very isolated at the moment. I mean, mm-hmm. extremely isolated. And only two people asked me what I did. And I was like, you know, I'm a little clean job, but the things I spend my time doing. Yeah. I'm on vacation. Don't ruin it for me. Yeah. 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 What does God give us to help us with the possibility of rejection? His example. Yes. And what, what is his example? What's the truth? Yeah, his word is the truth. Yeah, that's the, that's the encouragement. You're going to be rejected. Like, so it's, it's not the, the, the help that he gives us isn't as long as you always say it right. You're never going to be rejected. The help he gives us is, take up your cross and follow me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the question, I mean, I won't do a show of hands. When's the last time you were rejected? Yeah. That, that's where it's... <laughs> I was thinking about that. Thing. It's like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know. I get a whole lot of affirmation as a pastor. I think, I think us pastors have the most affirming... I mean... <laughs> Pastoring is difficult in a lot of ways, but 
it's rare to have a profession where week after week, multiple people are like, thank you for changing my life, you know, through that. I mean, so there's, there's difficulty there, but, but I, I was thinking, gosh, when's the last time I was, I was rejected in sharing the gospel? And I know that that's supposed to be somewhat of a norm. What, what are some other hurdles? We haven't gotten to a couple that I figured we'd... Mm-hmm. And so going to them and sharing them the gospel of Jesus is one thing, but going to them and saying, I know that you know Jesus and you know all of this, but I don't think you're saved. Yeah. Is, yeah. is like, I mean, I have family members, like, I'm, I know when they made their profession of faith. Yeah. And I'm fairly confident that's where it ended. Yeah. And yeah, the, a hurdle is everyone thinks they're saved. Yeah. It's, Talking with them, they think they're saved. Yeah. You know they're not. How do you? Yeah. Who does that sound like? Yeah. It sounds like the Jews in, in the in the New Testament. It sounds like this will this will bring the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free. We're the offspring of Abraham. We don't need that. We're, we're not we're not bound. We're not enslaved by anyone. So there's that help. I mean, it helps to identify these hurdles. I mean, I would love to sit here and identify every hurdle and then figure out how do we overcome it. And we'll get to some of the ways we overcome it, but seeing some of these hurdles is a big deal. Is racism a form of partiality? Sure, right? So at what point is your partiality racism? At what point? Is your partiality racism? Yeah. The moment you preach at someone, prejudge someone. Yeah. The moment you prejudge someone. So if I prejudge someone, it could potentially be racism. So that would be assuming that my judgment is based on the race. Yeah. But we tend to judge people a whole lot more, not based on skin color, mm-hmm. but on, you know, are you a meth user? You know? Sure. Are, oh, yeah, right here. Yeah. You know, are, are, are you I, mean, I mean that totally seriously. Yeah. Are, uh, are you, you just get out of prison and now you're, you're yeah. up with your girlfriend and you are down here asking for help because yeah. you're spending your money on drugs and you can't afford groceries? Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because that is, I mean, it's hard. I, have, I have a real struggle with it. Yeah. I, you know, that, that's a great example of this thing that I've been looking at is like, there is wisdom. We're supposed to be wise with our, our resources. We're supposed to be wise with our time. Scripture talks about when you correct a fool, you get smacked. I mean, you, you get hammered. And it says, but if you, if you teach a, a wise person, he becomes more righteous. But I've been wondering about, I mean, I'll just, I'll just come out with it. I, I, the... The news does not help us to keep people, the news does not help us to view Middle, East, Middle Eastern people impartially, right? I mean, you sit down on a plane. If I sit down by a guy who's wearing jeans, boots, and a plaid button-up, which is all I ever wear, <laughs> I'm going to look at him and be like, huh? Yeah, I'll talk to him. Yeah, he's probably similar. But if I sit down with a person who's clearly from the Middle East with, with an accent, maybe with a, a turban or something on their head, maybe with different dress, maybe it's baggy. Oh, well, what's under that? You know what I'm saying? And I just, I wonder, 
when you do that based specifically on race, it could be racism. That's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, I've got, you know, my grandmother, if you're walking down the road and there's a black person or something, it's, she, she would have hesitancies because they're black, that that's racism, right? Because it's just based on a, a, a nationality or skin tone or whatever. And so um, I just want... <sighs> we're called to reach the nations. Our entire motivation in remaining impartial is that Jesus was impartial. But I feel like 90% of the news, talk radio... And things of the like do not help us at all in remaining impartial towards sharing the gospel with the nations. I think if we watch the news enough, we listen to talk radio enough, the message is, we're the USA, forget the nations. I really do. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, they may have a level of wisdom that can be lost because you're so informed. Um, As Christians, I just I really want us to make sure we're aware of these things because we're called to be witnesses. We're called to be ambassadors, and we're called to be impartial. And I just think that given our current world climate, there's a, there's a significant um, uh, nationality that we, we would be very partial with um, and very hesitant. Now, I want to also say um, it's okay... <coughs> to be wise and to be aware of your surroundings. I'm not, I mean, it's okay. You don't have to be a gullible moron. Um, but you also need not be a judgmental, condemning racist. Yeah. Do you know what they had to make a decision on to, to move to a place where millions of people were coming in? Do you know what decision they had to make? It's worth the risk. That's the decision that they made. The decision that they made is, I'm called to be an ambassador and a witness to the gospel, and the nations are coming here. Are some of them going to be bad people? No doubt about it. Some of them are. But if you say they all are, you have no motivation to share the gospel with them. And that's kind of what we're getting at here in partiality. The clearest indication of the shift that we see in the message being for the Gentiles as well as the Jews is found in chapter 13. Look at 1344. That whole section, I spent more time on it, and I'm going back to it again. I hope I'm not beating a dead horse. The, the point I'm trying to make there is, I, I don't want us to be at a point of saying, 
I'm not racist. I, don't just, I just don't trust anyone from the Middle East because that's racism. That's, that's what we're getting at, and that's a hindrance to the forward movement of the gospel. That is being partial in the worst sense. So here in 1344, we see this explanation of uh, it moving and shifting, and it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul said, and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside... And um, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, And the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So we see this pattern of nation to nations. And the next pattern we see is from Peter to Paul. The shift takes place in chapter 9. We've already taken a look at it. But I want us to see the context a little deeper here. In chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul. God gets his attention on the road to Damascus. Um, and then uh, Saul goes proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He proclaims he escapes from Damascus, and Saul's in Jerusalem here. And in um, 9.15, it's interesting, Saul is converted. He's changed. And then God appears to a, a guy named Ananias and says, um, well, it says, uh, there was a disciple at Damascus in 9.10, 9.10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So here's Ananias. And God appears to him in a vision and says, Hey, you're going to need to help Saul out. And here's Ananias. Is Ananias going to be impartial? Or is he going to draw a conclusion? And Ananias um, answered, Lord, I've heard much from many (laughs) about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias, Feeling it out a little bit more. Hey, this is a great vision. Thanks for appearing to me. However, I've heard of Saul. And uh, he's got authority to pretty much throw me in jail whenever, whenever I see him. And we see in verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Just for a moment, what would that have been like for Ananias? Exactly. Saul was not a moderate guy. It's, I'm, I, oh, is he like the most unlikely Ananias? Here's a little insight. He's going to reach the Gentiles, the kings, the chief priests, the nations for my name. That must have been amazing to Ananias. I mean, if, if a terrorist, a known terrorist, if you got a vision... Go to the airport and pick up 
terrorist whoever, and bring him here. He can't talk or see. He can't see. We'll stick with the, we'll stick with the theme. You're going to help him. You're going to touch his eyes. Scales will fall off. And he needs your help. Uh, he's killing everyone who's not like him. That's what Saul was doing. And God says, I'm going to use them. In my hands, he is a significant, significant blessing to the kingdom of God. Remember, we're talking about the mission of Jesus. At first, Saul seems to be an unlikely person for accomplishing God's mission in the church. Paul, or Saul, is an ultra-nationalist. A nationalist. A Pharisee of Pharisees, and one who specializes in cult control and sect extermination. Particularly, this cult known as the Way, Chodos. I only know that because our Wednesday night was called The Way, Chodos, when I was growing up in a youth group. <laughs> but he specializes in that. He specializes in exterminating and getting rid of these terrible sects and cults. That's what he specializes in. And Paul's background makes him absolutely brilliant in being used by God the way God wants. It's amazing. Um, Paul's background makes him brilliant in addressing Greek philosophers it makes him brilliant in addressing Jews, and it makes him brilliant in addressing officials. This is very noticeable if you were to read through the book of Acts in one sitting. It goes from this guy is a terrorist to, whoa, he's genius. Did you see how he handled that situation with the officials? Did you see how he spoke truth and even weaseled his way out of a, a, a sticky spot? Over here, did you see how he won them over? Did you see how he's rejected? But he kept on believing the gospel and speaking it. I don't want you to turn to all these, but I'm just going to read them. I'm going to quickly address them. In chapter 17, verses 19 through 32, he addresses Greek philosophers appealing to an explanation of their unknown God. He, he appeals to them in a way that he knows they'll listen. It was very smart, and if he didn't have the background he had, he would have never, never done that with the Greek philosophers. Those were the guys that only sat around talking about new things all the time. Remember those guys? All they did was sit around and talk about new things all the time. And he got their attention. In 2139, he presents himself as a Jew to the Jews in Jerusalem and gains their attention by speaking in Aramaic. If not for his background, that wouldn't have gone nearly as well for him. But he speaks to them as a Jew to the Jews, speaking in Aramaic, particularly getting their attention. In 2227, he presents himself as a Roman citizen to the Roman guard who was preparing to flog him. So he's tied up. He's about to get whooped up like he's going to get hurt. And he's like, hey, is it okay to do this to a Roman citizen? Because that's what I am. Boom. He knows how to make the appeal. And they let him go. He doesn't get beat that day. In 23, my favorite one. In fact, just turn there. This is awesome. This is Paul before the council. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul's like, here I am. I stand for you with a good conscience. And the high priest over here, um, different Ananias, by the way. You don't help someone and punch him in the face. Um, he says... Um, strike him in the mouth. That's, that's the setting. I want you to see it. He's bound. 
He's communicating, and the priest says, hey, you guard, just pop him right in the mouth. Okay, and, and then we're going to move on from there. It's a weird thing. So he, gets, he, he orders him to strike him in the mouth, and then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it's like, you can almost see like, oh, you know, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, you whitewashed wall. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I didn't know who I was with, that whole thing. And so um, he, he didn't realize it was the high priest because of the way he was acting. And so you just talk back to the high priest. You're trying to make a case to where the council's going to listen to you and you started off by insulting the most popular guy in the room. That's a bad way to make an impression. It'd be like going into a sales pitch or something, and the, you didn't know the CEO was there, and he says something, you're like, hey, shut up. Keep your mouth shut. I've got something to say. And someone says, would you speak to the CEO in that manner? Oh, I didn't know you were the CEO, and it is not wise to say that to the CEO. I mean, you would be backpedaling, kind of how Paul is, but look what Paul does. The law says, it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He immediately is like, yes, I know the law, and I just didn't know you were the high priest. This is a bad situation. Paul needs to get out of the situation. Look at verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. What Paul knew is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a significant, sharp disagreement on resurrection. He played the whole room. Because what happens next? And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces them, by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force, bring him into the barracks. Can you imagine Paul, when he finally got to the barracks, was like, Oh, that was close. Luckily, I was able to turn the whole room upside down by using what I know because of my background as a Pharisee. He brashly insults the high priest, quickly apologizes, diverts attention from himself by provoking an argument between Pharisees and Sadducees over the resurrection. Paul was an amazing tool in the hands of Jesus. Paul was an amazing tool in the hands of Jesus. I want you to consider how that keeps us impartial. Talking about this partiality and this impartiality that's a struggle... Paul was an amazing tool in the hands of Jesus. Do not ever think that you have the wisdom to decide who will be good for Jesus or bad for Jesus. Don't ever think you have the ability to discern. This person will be good for the kingdom of God. This person will be bad. When we do that, we've stepped into a, um, a spot that we were never meant to be. The last thing that I want us to touch on real briefly is the means for the mission. God uses people. God uses people, particularly disciples, to perform signs and wonders, to live attractive lives, and to preach the word. I want to encourage you to go read about Cornelius and Peter in verses 33 through 35 of chapter 9. Cornelius has a vision 
as he's praying to God, he's a devout man. He prays to God. He brings offerings to God. And God heard his prayer. And then God told him to go to a place where he would find someone who would tell him something he needs to hear. And at the same time, God went to Peter and told him, you're going to need to welcome these people who come to get you. It's the whole don't eat, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And what I want us to see there is in verses 33 through 35, I'll just, I'll read it real quick. Nine. Nope. Ten. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, this is what we read earlier, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Cornelius was a man who feared God. Cornelius gave prayers and offerings to God. God heard Cornelius. But what I want us to see is, it was not Cornelius' piety or prayers that saved him. Nor was he saved in a vision or a dream. His prayers ascended to God, the God he feared. And God sent Peter to preach the gospel of Jesus to him. And that's how Cornelius got saved. And what I want us to know you can get online and see them. There are many modern-day stories of the same things happening all over the world. God doesn't save three people through dreams and visions, but especially in the Muslim community, there are story after story after story of God appealing to them and telling them to go to a particular place, and when they get there, there's a man of God who speaks the truth of the gospel to them, and they're saved. For this, we have to remember that the main means of the mission of Jesus is God's sovereignty, God will always accomplish his mission through us while never being dependent upon us. We see this in heavenly jailbreaks. We see this in thousands of fulfilled prophecies, like very, very specifically fulfilled prophecies. We see his effectual call on the lives of children. Throughout the book of Acts, God God pours out his spirit on people. God calls people to repentance. God grants them repentance. God appoints them to eternal life. God opens the door of faith. God opens the hearts of individuals to respond to the gospel and even determines the times and the places where people live. That's what we see about God throughout the book of Acts. Even the times and places where people live. So the reason you live in Greenville or Hunt County or around here in 2016 is because God appointed you to be here and live here right now. The reason you live in the house you live in is not because you made a wise decision. It's because God appointed you to live there. So remember, wherever you are, you're an ambassador. You're, you're called to be a witness to God and to the truth of the gospel. So the conclusion that I wish you want to close with, it's a question I want you all to think about. Is there anything, I think, I think Ben was the first one to present, I, I'm, I'm 99% sure that in 2004, The first time I heard someone say this was Ben. And he said, is there anything you're putting your hand to where it will fail if God's not in it? Because you see these amazing things happen in the book of Acts. I mean, amazing availability by Peter and Paul to go and speak. Amazing responses by officials. Amazing responses sometimes by Jews, sometimes by Gentiles. Amazing people being used who would be the most unexpected of all the people in the area. Is there anything that you're putting your hand to where it will fail if God is not in it? Do you see yourself as an ambassador? Do you pray like Cornelius? Do you respond to God's movement like Peter and like Paul? If there's anything, 
if there's nothing that you're putting your hand to where it will fail if God's not in it, then we're not moving in the faith that we could be moving in. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Acts. Um, we could spend so much more time in it. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful for you sustaining us through our study tonight and encouraging us in your truth. I pray that we would meditate on your word day and night so that we can be strong and courageous and fruitful and not fearful. Lord, it, it would seem that the world really wants us to be fearful and really wants us to be partial. And I pray that as Christians, we would fight against it every day and be really mindful when, something, when we're taking something in that might cause us to, to not be wholehearted messengers of the gospel. We trust you to work that in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.